Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We need to talk about this pandemic and the great effort around vaccines in America and around the world. And the latest trial data for phase three trials for the AstraZeneca vaccine in the United States, 79% efficacy. And here's the most important number, I think, 100% efficacy against severe or critical disease and hospitalization. And I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Ruud Dobber. He is the executive vice president of AstraZeneca's Biopharma Business Unit here in the United States. Ruud, it's great to catch up with you, sir. Let's start here. You are a company under siege for a vaccine that you're not looking to profit that much from. What's your message to the rest of the world right now? Uh, The message is relatively uh, clear. Um, First of all, thank you so much for being in the show. But uh, it's it's clear that we have a vaccine which is highly effective, uh, is showing an unprecedented high efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization. And that's important, of course, for the United States, for Europe. But let's not forget that this virus is everywhere in the world. Uh, so we are we are thrilled with the data and, and hopefully it's the next step uh, for all of us in, in order to combat against this terrible pandemic in, uh, in the world. You mentioned Europe. Some doubts were raised around the efficacy of this vaccine and the risk around it, too, in Europe over the last several months, specifically on the risks around blood clotting. What have you learned of phase three trials here in America about that specific issue, Rude? Yeah, as you, as you can imagine, uh, the Data Safety Monitoring Board uh, went literally with a magnifying glass through every case. And the very good news, and it was also in our press release, is that they didn't see any imbalance uh, regarding thrombolic, uh, thrombolic events in both the vaccinated group and, and the non-vaccinated group. So that's, uh, that's a great uh, a, a signal. And, and that's built on, on the very strong feedback we got last week from the MHRA in the UK and EMA. Uh, saying that the vaccine is highly effective and safe for for use. It doesn't mean, of course, that as always for for every product, for every vaccine, we will uh, clearly monitor every case we will get. Uh, But but it's fair to say that uh, based on the current data, the vaccine is, uh, is highly effective and very safe. I think that there's been a difficult time recovering after in December, there is that study uh, result out of the AstraZeneca vaccine that was somewhat confusing. There were two different groups and one it showed there was a 90% efficacy rate and in another it was 60 something uh, percent efficacy rate. How much do you think that's colored the view of people versus some other uh, policy error perhaps on the part of uh, politicians who haven't come out and endorsed the vaccine perhaps as much as you would have liked? Yeah, I think that, that that's always the case. Uh, the, the, the speed in, in which we are developing vaccines is, is, is unprecedented. Uh, we're not cutting corners in any way or form, but we are learning, learning like we're doing for, for our other products uh, as well. I think the, the, the importance of today is that this trial uh, has been uh, done in a, in a phenomenal way, more than 30,000 participants in the United States. Uh, at Peru and, and Chile, uh, showing an unprecedented efficacy, uh, while the, the, the safety profile is, is extremely uh, strong. So I think hopefully uh, what happened in the, in, in the, in the past is, uh, is, is, is gone, that this will further boost the confidence in the, in the vaccine. We are very confident. Uh, many regulators are, are very confident that the vaccine has been approved in more than 70 countries in the world. And our next priority, of course, is also to get this vaccine approved 
via an emergency use authorization in the United States. And, and we're going to apply that uh, in, in, in the first half of April. And then, of course, it's in the hands of the FDA to make their final uh, decision. Do you have a sense, Rita, of how widespread this sort of rare blood clotting development has become in the European Union? There have been a number of cases that have been reported. Do we have a handle on the scope of that? Yeah, what we know is that it is a very rare, very rare uh, event. Uh, of course, we are looking into it. The EMA, the, the MHRA is looking into it. At, at this stage, uh, the, the, it's very clear that uh, there is no clear a relationship between the vaccine and the events. So the, those events are are, are, are also there in, in, in people without any vaccination. Having said that, patient safety is always the number one priority uh, for us, like it is for other manufacturers, so we take it uh, very seriously. Uh, but let's not speculate, let's let's wait for the data. We're, we, are, we will do a lot of studies in order to get a, a, a better view on it, uh, as well as the EMA and other regulators in, 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 in the world. And of course, we also need to see the data from the other vaccines uh, to, uh, to get a very balanced uh, view, but it is far too early to speculate about how many times uh, it's, uh, it's occurring in the normal population. I don't want to get into speculation right now on an important issue. So, Ruth, let's focus on reliable supply of this vaccine and the issue around what is happening in Leiden right now in your Netherlands. There is a plant there, as you know, that still has not been approved to supply Europe, yet the Europeans are fighting over the vaccines that are being produced there. We've heard from several EU officials over the weekend, many publications printing the same thing, that the Brits are insisting that the plant there in the Netherlands must deliver the drug substance produced there to them. That does not work. What is produced in that plant has to go to the EU. We've heard that repeatedly from several publications. What's your interpretation of where supply from that particular plant can go and needs to go? Yeah, so, so first of all, let's, let's put it in perspective. Uh, the, the European supply uh, 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 chain is highly dependent on very, very two large uh, sites. One is, in, uh, is based out of the United States and the other one is in, in, in Belgium. So this is a relatively small uh, site. And, and so I, I, I don't want to do politics. That's not my job. My job is together with my other colleagues in order to provide uh, the, the vaccine to as many Europeans and as soon as possible. Uh, the site is, is, is playing a role, of course, it will play a role for the European supply moving forward. But so far, for, for all the viewers, it's absolutely clear that we haven't used the site neither in the UK uh, as well as in, uh, in, 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 in Europe. Both sites, both countries still need to approve this site. This site was originally meant to supply clinical trial material, so it hasn't been used yet for commercial supply. The EMA still needs to approve this, uh, this site. So I think there's a lot of confusion and there's no need for that. Rude, I understand you don't want to play politics, but you've certainly been dragged into the politics over the last year. And you and I need to talk again. AstraZeneca's Rude Dobber. Rude, thank you for catching up, sir. Bob Michael joins us now, JP Morgan Asset Management Chief Investment Officer. He joins us right now. Bob, here's your line. Fed to the bond market, drop dead. Is it that bad? Well, it is. If you own long bonds, you're feeling a little bit unanchored out there. And if you think about Lagarde and the ECB, they said they're going to support the bond market. They're going to increase purchases. Same thing with the Reserve Bank of Australia. From the Fed, nothing, zilch, zero. No wham extension, no operation twist, no increase in long uh, purchases, nothing. Uh, so they'll support the front end, which will help with growth, and that just leaves the long end unanchored. 
So, Bob, you and I have talked about this both online and offline about how much oxygen is left up here and when the sell-off becomes self-limiting. Tens north of 170 last week, right now 168.75. How much oxygen is left up here? Well, not a whole lot. I think you have to look at it in terms of real yields. And when you get to about a 0% real yield on their target of 2%, so around a 2% 10-year Treasury, I think the bond market will mark time there for a bit and see which way the economy and inflation are breaking. I think you'll have a pause. If real yields start to go much higher into positive territory, then you better have strong growth and you better have the inflationary pressure. Otherwise, it's going to have an impact across all asset classes. Bob, there was another move that the Federal Reserve made last week, which was perhaps a little bit more under the radar. They did not extend this exemption for the supplementary leverage ratio. And the idea here is that banks were holding a lot more treasuries on their books, and they didn't have to hold additional capital to offset the potential risk. A lot of people said that made sense. The fact that it wasn't extended may prompt banks to have to sell some of these treasuries, yet we're not seeing that reflected necessarily just yet in the yields. Do you think this will become more of a problem for the auctions this week as the U.S. prepares to sell $206 billion of debt. Yeah, and, and I know there's a bit of a two-way argument that, that's, that's uh, been created on the supplementary leverage ratio. I don't understand the two-way argument. If, if the supplementary leverage ratio, giving the exemption, didn't help the system absorb deposits and treasuries, then what was the point in the first place? So if it did absorb deposits and treasuries and now the exemption's gone away, it stands to reason that you're going to have more deposits and treasuries floating around the system. Okay, so can you extrapolate out what that means for yields? I mean, could this lead to yields that do not lead uh, to just loose financial conditions? Could it be a tightening in financial conditions? Because it's not stemming from growth expectations, but rather from a, a misbalance, for perhaps, or a change in the balance of supply and demand. Well, that's a really good question. And I think for sure you're going to see obviously a lot more supply. We've got a $1.9 trillion stimulus uh, working its way through the system. That's got to be funded. Now you don't have these big balance sheets there to absorb it the way they might have last month. And on top of that, um, I think the other thing you hinted at, I think this is the first step of the Fed tightening monetary policy. It's gradual, and I think we've just seen that. Without ostensibly coming out and supporting the long end, and then letting the exemption on SLR uh, expire, I think that's the first stage in, in the normalization or tightening process. Bob, let's finish up on this and what you do day to day that we don't talk about enough. People come across to you, and I'll make this sound simple, and I know it's much more complex than that, but they come across to you with big amounts of money, huge mandates, and you have to put that money to work. As you put that money to work now and look at treasuries, when do they start to get interesting again for you and compete for capital with elsewhere? Well, I, I, in the 10-year, not until you get above 2%. I, I don't see the reason to buy 10-year treasuries at a negative real yield. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there is some opportunity in the front end of the curve. As long as the Fed is continuing to support that market, you can buy credit there, you can buy high yield, you can buy securitized credit. 
And, and yes, you can even buy some of the emerging markets that are out there. Well, let's talk about EM and finish there, shall we, Bob, since you brought it up. It looks like a mess right now in select parts of emerging markets. We've seen several central banks need to hike over the last week still to come. Where do you like and why? Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and they're reflecting the term emerging markets. They will come uh, with some problems. It looks like it was a little bit early at the start of the year to go into emerging market uh, debt markets and, and currencies. And the theory was that as the developed markets recovery, the emerging markets would draft off of that. And it looks like they're a little bit further behind, so the dollar probably holds in here. It doesn't mean that you can't go into some of the higher yielding emerging markets and start buying that debt with high real yields. Maybe this time you'll fund it out of euros instead of dollars. Well, but John raises a really good point. It has to do with emerging markets, which is, is it a time to reach for yield if the Fed is beginning to hint at their normalization process, as you said? Um, I, I think it is. I, I think you, you have to still go where there are high real yields. You still have to go where there's opportunity to make some return on currencies. Every emerging market isn't exactly the same. Turkey this week is clearly different than a lot of the other emerging markets, particularly the Asian emerging markets. Um, so I, I think you've got to roll up your sleeves and get in there. Yeah, yields aren't as high as we would like them to be. The story's not as clean as we might like it to be, but you still have capital to put to work. It never is, Bob. And isn't that the story? We've talked about this so much that all the naysayers in fixed income, whether it's credit, wherever it is, everything they say was true six months ago, nine months ago, and here we are. What do you say back to them, Bob? I say I'm sympathetic. I, I don't really like buying high-yield debt at 4.5% or bank loans at discount margins of just over 4%, but I know default rates are coming down a lot from where they are. And when we look at back at high yield credit spreads, they don't widen when default rates come down. So I think credit spreads are gonna come in. They'll come in from you know, 325, 350 basis points towards 250, 275 basis points. That will absorb a lot of the backup in the government bond market. Bob Michael sends you his sympathies. Bob, it's good to catch up. <laughs> Bob Michael there, JP Morgan Asset Management Chief Investment Officer. Right now, this is a joy to quote Tom Keene to channel his energy, his spirit animal this week uh, when he is off. Heather Boucher joining us right now, one of the uh, key people as part of President Joe Biden's Economic Council, helping to shape policy in the now and what will come later this year. Heather, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with messaging around the uh, stimulus that has been passed. Do you feel like the amount of money that has been passed has already trickled into the system that people are aware of what the benefits they could potentially get uh, will be and have been? Well, that's a great place to start, Lisa. Um, certainly, I think everybody is aware of the checks, right? We know that 100, over 100 million checks have gone out to the American people already. And I think people understand that that money is coming. But, you know, there's so much more in the package to help people and businesses and communities all across this country deal with the pandemic and deal with the economic crisis. You know, there's an increase in nutrition aid for the Women, Infant, and Children's Program and the, the, the Supplemental Nutrition Program. There's actually 
also money out there, about $4 billion to help farmers of color who are in debt because of the pandemic and, and are struggling. So there's a lot of different pieces out there for different communities that have been greatly impacted by the pandemic. Heather, a lot of people are looking at the stimulus passed for uh, tea leaves as to what to come. And John Farrow has actually raised this on a number of occasions, this idea that $110,000 is an annual income that's being defined increasingly as heavily uh, middle income, the idea that that is actually a justification to get some assistance. Can you talk a little bit about whether that's a significant number, that that is middle class, middle income, whereas $400,000 is upper class? That's a great question. And, you know, as an economist, I've, I've spent a lot of my career with folks trying to define what is middle class and what's at the bottom. And what we've seen over the past year during this crisis is, you know, we've talked a lot about this K-shaped economy. And we've seen that for folks that, you know, earn, you know, individually about $50,000 a year or less, that that really is the dividing line between the kinds of jobs, the experiences people have had, the experiences with hunger and food insecurity. And so you double that and that, that gets to a family income that gets closer to about 100000 Looking across the country, in some parts of the country, that's a lot of money. In other parts, that's not so much. And I think what's important here is that we really recognize that folks at the top have done uh, been able to you know maintain their incomes for the most part, their jobs, um, assets have been okay. So um, so they have been less hurt. And really, it's those folks in the bottom third, um, that bottom part of the K, that have been hardest hit by the pandemic and are struggling the most in this recovery. So I think it's it's right to focus on that. What matters less is the exact you know cutoff. Um, in uh, it that matters for each and every program. We don't need one same. Um, cut off for everything, but we do need to keep our focus on how the economy looks different at different parts of the income distribution. And definitely from an economic perspective, it's important to have this sort of holistic look at which areas got hit hardest. From a numerical standpoint, certainly when crafting taxes, that is what matters to a lot of people because it determines whether they will be paying higher or lower taxes. $400,000 a year in annual income has been pegged as the number where taxes start to go up more significantly. And there's a question of whether this is for an entire household or whether it's for an individual. Do you have clarity on which it is? Well, at this point, you know, the president made clear time and time again on the campaign trail and through governing that you know, if you make less than $400,000 a year, your taxes won't go up. Now, all the details are still to be worked out. This is an ongoing conversation. So I can't speak to specifics at this point. But what I can tell you is that he's been clear on that commitment and that that number is incredibly far up the income distribution. We are looking at folks just at the very, very uh, top of the spectrum. There's also a question more generally on the lower part of the spectrum of whether we just experienced modern monetary theory in, in practice, this idea that you send checks out to the bottom quartile, the bottom third, and that actually is the money that gets spent and that goes into the economy and generates growth and inflation that's positive. Is there something or any proposal about some sort of universal income or uh, universal checks to be sent out for that purpose on an ongoing basis? Well, you know, it's interesting you would ask that question. You know, already prior to the pandemic, we had programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit that provided uh, a tax credit to families at the very bottom of the of the income distribution, families with children. 
what happened as a part of the American Rescue Plan is we expanded that to folks that didn't have children and we expanded the child tax credit, giving money to to uh, families with children, you know, uh, significantly ramping that up for families at the very, very bottom. So those kinds of uh, policies that are focused on those who need it most certainly are ones that we have a track record of doing in the past and seem very popular uh, to the American people. Heather, there have been a number of people who have criticized the $1.9 trillion stimulus as being too big, given where we are in the pandemic and the economic cycle. What's your response to that? Well, you know, we built that plan from the ground up to focus on the challenges facing our society and our economy right now. We know that this pandemic is still raging across the country, across the world, and that families and businesses and state and local governments needed the resources to be able to address this pandemic and weather this crisis. Get us to the other side. Make sure that um, those businesses could hold out, those families could hold out until those jobs come back. I mean, I think sometimes we forget that we've actually seen 52 weeks, 52 weeks of record high claims for unemployment benefits. Um, this economic crisis isn't over. And because, you know, while we're doing everything we can to contain the pandemic, get vaccines out, um, you know, the, the shape of the virus is still uncertain. We don't know if new strains are going to come up or, you know, how that's going to play out. So we need to make sure that families are prepared, that communities are prepared. And so that is why this package was uh, the size that it was. Heather Boucher, thank you so much for being with us. Heather Boucher is a member of President Biden's Economic Council uh, discussing some of the plans coming up. And also she is the former president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. It was stunning to see two delegations, the United States and China, face off in Alaska in the past week. You know how it was meant to go. One party gets two minutes, the other party gets two minutes. They close the door, tell people like me to get out of the room, and then the conversations start. That is not what happened. The United States kept the press in, they snapped back, and things weren't looking good even after that either. So let's talk to a man that has seen this a million times over the last few decades. It's Ambassador Robert Hormans, and he joins us now. So, Bob, let's start there. How many times have you seen this in your career in various parts of the world and how original that moment might still have been in Alaska last week? Well, this was a bit unusual. Normally, these things are very well set up, you know, two minutes for one, two minutes for the other, and then the, the pool or the press spray, as they call it, leaves, and then they get down to work. I think this meeting was designed to do several things that are a little different than in the past. One, it was the first high-level meeting between China and the U.S. Second, the audience was at least half uh, domestic. China wanted to demonstrate to its own people that it was taking tough positions on difficult issues, uh, particularly bottom line or what they call red line issues. But the U.S. was also conveying a message, too, that we weren't going back five or, or ten years ago. This was going to be a, 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 an American relationship with China that was much more assertive. And when China took more time than was anticipated, uh, Secretary Blinken decided that he was going to assert uh, the desire of the United States to uh, go back and identify some of the issues that China raised and talk about them while the press was still there, which was somewhat unusual. But So it got off to an unusual start. Uh, but the, the fundamentals, I think, were more or less predictable. The, the Chinese wanted to assert themselves uh, and the U.S. wanted to show that it was going to be a tougher U.S. 
than the Chinese had seen in the past, and that it was pushing China to take actions that the U.S. had not necessarily pushed them very hard for before the Trump administration. Obviously, the tone was very different from the Trump administration, but the the strong line uh, in many ways really was a continuation of much of what the Trump administration uh, was saying. We'll see what it does. Bob, if I can push you a little bit harder on that particular issue, on the new approach, so to speak, and the results it might generate, are we doing anything different to what we've tried over the last several decades? And if the ultimate goal of diplomacy is to try and adapt, shape, change behavior of Beijing, do you see any change on the horizon from this approach? I think it's going to be very difficult. I think that the, the Chinese have made, first of all, the Chinese at the, the bottom line is that they believe in, 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 in what they call Dangsheng Shijia, which is that the the East is rising and the West is declining. They come into this period with a high level of confidence in the way they've dealt with the, the, the pandemic internally in China since the outbreak. Um, their economy is growing. They're playing a much stronger role in the global economy. President Xi is becoming a, a major leader of multilateral and regional events. So they have a level of confidence. Um, and, and the Chinese wanted to project that. Uh, President Biden's team, which is a terrific team, I mean, Tony Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan are really people I've worked with, they're, they're first class. Uh, and the United States is now saying, look, this is going to be the issue of the, of the decade and, and several decades in the future. And we're going to be very persistent. We're going to say what's on our mind and we're going to uh, take actions. The question is, what are they going to do? And, and, and this meeting was more about statements and positioning rather than specific sets of actions that the United States plans to take in, say, the South China Sea. The United States is, has been active in the South China Sea. Uh, the president has taken tougher actions on technology. President Biden has. So I think we're going to see a ramping up of pressure um, by the United States on China in some areas, what they will be and how far the U.S. is going to go. The U.S. is still reviewing that. That was a very polite way, Bob, of saying that this meeting was entirely for the press and for uh, sort of the image and not for any substance. There is a question about whether this push to collaborate when it comes to global warming is real or whether this also is a statement for the press and to try to appeal, frankly, to the sort of more left leaning Western media that back uh, President Biden. Is that your sense of this? Well, that would be the one issue where I think there is a prospect of some level of convergence. And that is because the environmental issue in China is a very important domestic political issue as well. China, as you doubtless know, has had a big pollution problem in the past. And there's a lot of support among Chinese for a more proactive policy on uh, climate change and environmental issues. And for the Chinese, it's a way of their showing uh, that they want to be part of a, of a global leadership, uh, global cooperative efforts. So I think, and, and of course, President Biden, this is a big issue for him politically. It's certainly a big issue for Americans at home. It's certainly a very important part of the Democratic Party's uh, platform and the campaign and, and, and the support of the Democratic Party for the president. So I would say in this area, um, along with, I would think, down the road, 
cooperation on healthcare issues, on cooperation on on trying to deal with future avoid future pandemics. I would say those would be the two areas where there is a chance of a high level, higher level of convergence uh, than in than many other areas. So th this was, I think, good good public uh, relations, but also also I think there's some substance behind it. Bob, we're lucky to catch up with you, sir. As always, let's catch up soon. Robert Hormat's there, Tiedemann Advisors Managing Director. Lara Rang joins us, FS Investments Chief, US Economist. Lara, over the last month, the Chairman of the Federal Reserve has sounded like the Chairman of the US Central Bank, not the Global Central Bank. Do you start to see issues emerging on the global stage as a result of that? Well, I think there is this idea that the dollar is now the that the um, that interest rates, you know, a lot made me think of the dollar in your prior conversation, is starting to really rise in the U.S. more than it is in the rest of the developed world, and you know that's something that I think will continue to get a lot of attention. And to your point, a stronger dollar inherently slows down the U.S. economy. I think the real question is: Is the Fed going to be able to have its cake and eat it too? You know, it wants to be positive on the economy. All that's pushing up rates, and then at the same time, when does it start to circle back and actually hinder U.S. economic growth? Well, right now, no one's talking about slower growth in America. That's for sure. The consensus view in our survey: five point six percent. I think the Federal Reserve is six and a half percent for this year. Laura, let's start there, and then we'll get into it. What are your expectations for this year, and then perhaps increasingly of importance over the last couple of weeks? Looking out, the deceleration from twenty to 22. Can you put some numbers on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're looking at 6% or more for this year. And then for next year, back down to 2.8%. Because to me, uh, you know, all of these, uh, you know, the, the bigger bump that we get in services as part of the economy catching up, hopefully getting that labor market back to uh, full employment, all of that's going to cause a really strong growth profile this year. But beyond that, I see a couple of tailwinds building, one of which could be the government needing to put in more austerity, needing to find a way to pay for all of this spending. I think the pendulum could swing the other way, and that's just one thing that could bring growth crashing back to trend. I say crashing not because we would in any way go negative, but growth of 2.8% would still feel very strong for our economy. This is really important, Laura, and there's a question about those tax hikes that we've heard out of Biden's administration as they talk about an additional round of stimulus, particularly for infrastructure spending. How much are current estimates of economic growth factoring in some of those aspects, those tax hikes, those other uh, sort of measures to curb the deficit going to ha uh, hamper growth? I mean, I, I, Lisa, I go out with my forecast and people say that I'm pessimistic. I think Right now, there's so much euphoria. There's so much optimism. The economy has done so well through this, you know, epic downturn that when you sort of talk about structurally low growth or demographics or, you know, any of the boring stuff that we were all talking about before COVID, and then you, you know, layer on the fact that, you know, the pendulum could very well swing back from being so uh, fiscally accommodative. Anything like that, I think, could, you know, I, I don't know. I don't hear a lot of other people talking about it, but I think it would be a mistake to assume that the U.S. is now China and can sustain growth at these astronomic levels. Lara, a really good final point. Thank you. Lara Rain there, FS Investments Chief, U.S. Economist on the U.S. and on China. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.